Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Awareness Project. Um, today, I'd like to introduce you to one of our newer guest speakers uh, who's going to join us on the podcast uh, as, you know, as I mentioned, a guest uh, every few episodes. His name is Nick Lockhart, and he comes with a very uh, good amount of policy uh, experience and expertise. Um, so, Nick, can you say a couple of words about yourself before we dive into today's episode? Sure. I've got some experience in engineering, in law, and in government. I wouldn't claim expertise, but I can at least claim a multidisciplinary perspective. I'm interested in how things work. For example, growing up, I always liked looking at cross-sections of airplanes and cars. And more recently, I've been interested in how institutions and society work. And I know that I've had a lot of conversations with you in the past, and, and it just seems that you've had... Um, you know, a, a lot of information to to give, right? And I've actually learned a lot from you. So I think just from that standpoint, I think it, it's great to have you on the show. And, you know, uh, thank you again for taking time out to uh, to, to help us out with, uh, with some new episodes and new content. So with that said, uh, I'm going to delve into today's episode. Um, we are going to talk about the job gap uh, issue that the United States is running into. And as every single year passes, it seems that it's getting worse and worse, where it seems that a lot of people are unemployed, but also employers are not picking up candidates for specialty jobs that they require. So there's a big shortage of uh, candidates in the market, but specific candidates that employers are looking for. So with that said, Nick, uh, do you want to start off and, and give us your two cents on, you know, what you think is, is causing this? And more importantly, um, you know, how do you think that we as a country can can move forward with what we see today and how we can train and implement some policies so that people don't feel so lost and, you know, are su successfully employed in, in the long term? Sure. So I think one of the causes is that it takes a while from when someone begins their, uh, their education to when they enter the, the job market. And so we have a, a system of providing our citizens with skills to make them productive members of the economy. Um, and that system kind of interacts with our economic system as new, uh, new workers are produced um, I guess to, to use a clinical term, but uh, as uh, new workers enter the workforce, and I think what's happened is with the pace of technological change, the, um, the, our system of producing new workers just hasn't kept up with the needs of our uh, economic system, essentially. It's, it's sort of lagging behind, and the the price of that gap is that you have a mismatch between the skills we're equipping our citizens with and the skills that our businesses need. Right. So I think what I was reading up recently was there's definitely two separate um, issues here, right, in terms of the kind of jobs that, that are out there in the market. I mean, typically you would, you would um, identify jobs to fall into three separate categories that is low skill, medium skill, and high skill. Um, 
I have read that all three skills are almost equally affected right now. And I, I always thought that it was the low skill jobs that were, you know, affected the most because, I mean, understandably, manufacturing has sort of dwindled away since I would say like the 60s, 70s and 80s when everything started going uh, and was outsourced uh, to countries in, in Asia um, and, you know, maybe Africa, other places around the globe. And that caused a lot of uh, folks to lose their jobs and found it extremely difficult to get back into the job market with new skills. What a lot also was that medium and high skill jobs are also being affected. And one of the things that I, I kind of remember, and this is just anecdotal from my um, sort of uh, job experience in, in for several years, one of my ex-bosses kept telling me that to grow in a company, it doesn't matter, you know, where you are, what you've done, et cetera. You have to perform, you have to be efficient, 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 and make sure you do whatever is thrown at you. And that's the only way that you can grow in a company. And the work culture that I was in was a little bit toxic where you were expected to work 24-7 and churn, churn, churn. Doesn't matter if you have a life outside, try to figure out a way to manage and, and balance everything, right? So that being said, I feel that the employers today, and it just might be a function of all of us wanting instant gratification and wanting everything done perfectly and perceiving our life and everything around us as being perfect and you know, available to us at our very, uh, every sort of women fancy. Um, I feel that employers are sort of shying away from average to above average candidates and are looking for that perfect gem or that goose that lays the golden egg in every position that they're seeking right now, made be low skill, medium skill, or high skill jobs. And, you know, I, I'll, we'll touch on this in a little bit, but I think even education, as you mentioned earlier, does fit into this whole sort of paradigm, right? And, and this whole vicious circle, if you will. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first, a quick question on, on that uh, job experience you had. About how long was the average tenure for, for your coworkers there? So this is where, where it gets a little difficult, right? So the company that I work for was getting rid of their older coworkers or older uh, workforce because they were placed in uh, sort of high income areas of the United States or even outsourced in, in high income neighborhoods, right? So they were trying to get up like uh, all kinds of different centers all around the United States in lower income communities so that A, they would pay them a lot less and usually hire a younger workforce that are you know easy to work with cheaper labor, you can train them the way you want. And they would do whatever they needed to just to get, you know, a few good years of experience on a resume with mm -hmm. some few, you know, good references, right. But I don't think that the the um, there was a lot of churn. I mean, I, I'd be on I'd, I'd lie and tell you if, if I if if people stuck around for more than three, four, five years, because Abe, there was a lot of uh, the tendency of burnout. And more importantly, like people just found better opportunities. I mean, and that's one of the other issues that I was reading about is like when I, so just again, anecdotally, when I joined the workforce in the early 2000s, and I'm giving away my age right now, but um, when I joined the workforce, I remember I, ha I was given training for about a week. Whether it was useful or not is, uh, you know, part of a different discussion, but they actually sat us in a classroom and 
taught us with, you know, teachers coming in and experts and subject matter experts in the field and teaching us the software applications that we were working with, how they work, what the features or functionality was. And they even went deep into, um, you know, some uh, uh, fundamentals, if you will, right, for, let's say, accounting or you know, just IT based stuff or coding, et cetera, so that you get a better understanding of what you're diving into. And before we were given assignments, we were given that sort of cushion, plus a little bit of time to play around with the, the software to make sure we were getting acclimatized to it. But now I see new people coming in, you have to hit the road running or hit the ground running the first day of the job. And it is so much pressure. Like if you're not inclined to do what is expected of you, and if you're not good at that, you are going to falter and fall behind and people are not going to like it. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely see where you're coming from there. Um, I think sort of related to that expectation though, it, it makes it difficult to find new employees to fill those roles. If <laughs> sort of immediate contribution is the expectation um, and I think definitely a contributing factor, uh, to the skills gap and to, to provide, um, sort of a, a personal anecdote. I know that sometimes when I've looked at job listings, you'll read a, a job description and it'll sound interesting. And I get the impression that it's something I could do. It would maybe take a few months to get up to speed um, but then when you look at the required experience of course they most companies are looking for uh, several years sometimes of basically doing that exact job and uh, to your point it, there's not really the patience for months of getting up to speed it's as you said sort of immediate contribution is the expectation no, I completely agree. And I think just to add to what you're saying also, so let me ask you a, a question based on that experience that you had, right? If you spend, say, six, eight, ten months to do a certification, I mean, most of the people who are doing, you know, continuous education, if you will, um, are doing it with a full-time job. That itself has a lot of pressure on you to perform not only at work, but to come back home and, and you know, finish studying for your certification or whatever you need to do. And in today's, especially in today's fast-paced uh, sort of economy and the tech sector, where most of these jobs unfortunately lie, um, how do you know or how can you gauge that what you're learning today, and you may not be able to finish for maybe a year, year and a half, depending on how much time you can spend, that it's going to be relevant in a year and a half from now? Right. And to your second point, um, the the gap that you're seeing um, in terms of how many, I guess, people are available for that job or, or want to put that much time and effort into learning something. Um, do they even see the value in it over the long, long run? Right. Um, so. I'll, I'll let you answer that, but there's another anecdote that I wanted to give you with just a very recent experience that I had for a a course that I was thinking of taking at a prestigious university and the conversation that I had with the uh, the recruiting department. So why why don't you and you know give me your thoughts on that and then I'll come to that to my point. That's that's a great question. I mean, it's I think difficult for workers to know 
which certifications either their current employer or prospective employer is going to find uh, most valuable, not necessarily when they sign up for it, but when they expect to complete it, particularly if you're talking about a string of certifications that build on each other and you want to know where to get started. Now, I suppose you can talk to, to coworkers and other people in the field uh, to see what they have found most useful, but there's certainly a trap where you could wind up signing up for a course just because it was the best advertised and not necessarily the most useful um, to employers um, or the most marketable to employers. So there's definitely a danger there uh, in terms of certifications. And I think there's also an underlying concern or skepticism about certifications that they certainly show that you can take whatever test is required to, to earn the certification, but that may not translate into uh, job productivity um, and, and knowing the skills that you need to fulfill a role on a day-to-day -day basis. No, I completely agree. I think that's always a risk that employers do need to take. Right? At the end of the day, we are human. And I think that over, you know, it's, it's been proven so many times that just because you're academically inclined doesn't mean that you are a good uh, worker when you can be put into stressful situations or when deadlines loom or you can work well with the team, et cetera. And that, you know, I'll, I'll go back to my anecdote first and I'll, there's a point that I want to come uh, to uh, in terms of what we are talking right now. But the, the thing that I was uh, alluding to earlier on, so a couple of months ago, I was looking into doing some certifications in data analysis. And I talked to, I forget, which was one of the prestigious universities. I called them. I saw this course online. I mean, they're advertised all over the place, all social media, everywhere. And it looked good to me. So I was like, you know what? It's a six or nine month course. I think I can deal with it. I can see what I can do, get it, move on. I called them and the cost associated with that course was $50,000. Wow. And I laughed at that person for a couple of reasons. Number one is this is something I can teach myself. Like being in the, the field where I am, you know, it just takes a little bit of perseverance and just trying to figure out how things work. I mean, you being in the tech sector and dealing with new software, new applications, new things every single day, your mind becomes so analytical. It, it's just easy for you to pick something up and run with it and find value in it. But the, the whole point that some of these um, classes are so extortionist, just because you get a very prestigious name associated with them, you know, you, you're still falling in that same trap as you have someone, you know, it's a, you, you turn into this nice shiny object that people love, but at the end of the day, you know, when, when you, the rubber meets the road, all that shine wears off and you, you are a rusty, you know, old nail and just to give a very bad uh, analogy. Right. <laughs> but um, that's, that's one of the biggest issues. The second is like, you can study as much as you want and do how many of our certifications, but there's so much choice out there right now. What do you really know what you want to do? Like even 15, 20, 30 years ago, yes, when you were two years old, someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. Things were simpler then. Now the tech adult world that we live in, how do you even make a conscious choice? Like, what do you know what you want to do? Even in the smallest space that you, you can granularize it as much as you want, but there's still so much choice in the smallest thing that you can pick. How do you know how well what you want to do and how good you can get in it? 
in, in that particular field, right? And more importantly, how do you find the time? You have finite time on this earth. How, how much are you going to keep learning um, just to earn a paycheck, right? Right. It's um, on, your, on your second point, it's sort of like when you go, uh, go to the grocery store and you're overwhelmed sometimes by the choices and you just because you have so many, you wind up dissatisfied with whatever choice you made, even though it may be a, a good choice for you. Um, on the first point, uh, that, that is uh, an astounding price for, uh, for a certification. One of the things that could be an interesting alternative to that is if you went to uh, a, either your current employer or a prospective employer and you took that cost, right? Like let's say $50,000 and you said, let's say, for example, it does cost that much to, to train someone on a particular technology or skill set to say, I'd like to do this as on the job training and as figure out a way to allocate that $50,000 between sort of, I know that I'll take a productivity impact as I'm trying to get up to speed. I'm not really going to be worth my full salary during that time. There may be an impact to other employees who are teaching me, but you know, maybe I'm willing to forego some of my salary, you know, maybe not $50,000 depending on, you know, what, what the, your full salary is, but sort of cost share with the employer and cut out the, the certifying body so that you're saying, let's do it as on the job training, let's share the costs. And then at the end of the day, you have skills that you know at least this employer values and likely other employers value as well and you don't have to worry about the mismatch between certification and real world and i think it also is beneficial for the employer because they're they're getting a better employee at the end of the day and you know if you're if you're learning it in the context of that business then maybe you're more likely to stick with that particular company. I know there's a lot of concerns that companies have about training an employee and then having them leave and go to a competitor. No, that those are very good points. And I think just to add to what you were alluding to a second ago, I mean, not everybody is in the fortunate position of being at a place where the employee is willing to A, pay for, the certification that you want, and more importantly, what that certification aligns to what the employee wants to do. Again, in the world where we live in, where there's just so much choice, the chances of what you want to do and what your employer is expecting out of you are probably poles apart, right? So even, you know, for argument's sake, if a person is able to get that benefit from an employer to be able to get, you know, whatever certification that they require, um, I, I really doubt that the employer would be able to support that financial burden because a lot of employees are shying away from people that they need to take a chance on. And if this is something, whether you are an employee that is, uh, you know, rock solid in the position that you are in, this is another risk for an employer in two ways is because now you're ex you're exploring other opportunities outside for other new stuff and new things that you want to do, which kind of tells the employer that, oh, you're not interested in the job that you're doing. 
And more importantly, they don't want you to leave. If you're an ace at what you're doing, they don't want you to leave that position. doesn't matter if your career is on the line or whatever have you. But very few employers in today's date want you to leave that position and go somewhere else because A, they may not be able to fill that position successfully. And B, that tells them that now you've come to the end of your cycle and you are definitely going to start looking, which means if, if you know, the worst were to happen and positions at the company are on the chopping block, you might be one of the contenders there. Definitely. And I think it would require a, a significant change in how an employer looks at their employees. And one way you could look at it is if I have an employee who's doing a great job in their particular role, but I know wants to that, that employee wants to explore other roles, is it worth it to let that employee explore those other roles and sort of lower the risk that they leave completely. Um, Another facet of this is the set of um, uh, soft skills and I think match between an employee and an employer in terms of culture where if the employee is a good fit and they're familiar with the company's culture and values, um, and even at a sort of operational level, they're the main customers, uh, main suppliers, the, the product lines, things like that, things that apply to multiple different roles, then maybe it would be over the long run um, worthwhile for the employer to invest in letting the employee explore a different role within the same company. No, I completely agree with you. But, you know, as, as I think that the way that the workforce has been moving for the past few years, I think efficiency is sort of the name of the game. And people have realized, I believe, after not only like the 1998 uh, crash, but also the 2008 crash, is that if you strain people enough and push people enough, their desperation will make them work the most efficient that they can, you know, in any form that they can be, right? And they can, they can pull in long hours without a lot of complaint just because they have some sort of sense of security. Um, so I think employers have realized that and they've been exploiting that for the last few years. But more importantly, coming to the point of soft skills, and I think this is where it's, it, you know, the, the conversation becomes very interesting is I was reading an article a few days ago where it clearly said that, you know, soft skills were something that people automatically nurtured when they were interacting with, you know, other human beings. Maybe, you know, when you were doing a job when you were a teenager or interacting with other people, playing with kids in a park, etc. But in today's climate, when everything is done virtually, and especially due to this pandemic, I think things are going to get a lot worse from that standpoint. Um, having kids learn soft skills is going to be a Herculean task. And more importantly, you know, this is like a sort of a segue point, but a lot of these top, you know, Fortune 10, Fortune 20 companies are now completely disregarding college institutional degrees. And they are searching out those raw um, sort of precious gems, if you will, in the marketplace that have maybe got a high school degree, but have have that aptitude to pick up and just run with it and become entrepreneurs. Right. And 
given that you don't get that part of your education, which in my opinion is important to, you know, hone in all kinds of skills necessary, most importantly, the soft skills. How do you think that our job market in the next 10, 20 years is going to look like? I think it's, it's, it's difficult for me to speak to that on personal experience. I think that we certainly, I've seen a lot of anecdotal evidence, I suppose, of tech whizzes and that, uh, that sort of attitude in um, high tech fields where there's, like you were saying, a, a premium placed on raw talent. And I'd be curious to see what the what sort of a full survey or a full um, body of evidence would turn up in that regard, because I think there is a lot of value in building skill over time. And even though there may be pressure to uh, immediately produce and define these um, sort of world-class employees, since you can uh, scale up their work in a, in a digital format, right? Like they can write something that can be produced for, for millions or billions of customers. But I think that that type of employee may not, um, it may, that type of employee may cause problems for employers in the long run or may not be as um, reliable in terms of, you know, what happens when all of a sudden that employee wants to uh, wants to jump ship and go to another employer. And it, it sort of, it almost reminds me of um, like looking for a franchise quarterback in the NFL, right? It's, right. Um, there's just such a premium and you start to wonder, well, you know, is there a way to kind of rebalance and is there any way to compete with a, a workforce or a team made up of um, less talented, but more evenly talented workers. Um, and then, and that's on sort of a, a company or an employee level, but if you zoom out to sort of a, societal level, I think there are some concerns there because that ultimately you're continuing to um, concentrate uh, wealth in, in the hands of, you know, a relatively small set of, uh, of workers um, based on, you know, based on their skill set. And there's certainly merit in that way. We kind of think of uh, employment as a meritocracy in that regard, but to take a, again, a larger view, if we, you know, we have a consumer based economy and if the majority, if the vast majority aren't of workers aren't being paid enough to afford those consumer goods, then all of a sudden, um, I, it, I think it's going to create a lot of larger issues. No, I completely agree. Right. But I think we should um, talk about the other side of the coin also in terms of education. Um, what we have seen so far, you know, we, I, at least for myself, I, I can speak to myself, like my education was 
I wouldn't necessarily call it easy, but it was quite streamlined, meaning that, you know, you, you finish high school, you go to college, you go for uh, your master's program, grad school afterwards, et cetera. And there was like a linear progression of how you basically climbed up the chain of education. But today, you know, the world has changed dramatically in the last 20 odd years. And the, the onus is now on individuals to make or break their own career. So the amount of pressure that you're putting on kids, you know, who are like in their early teens to decide what vocation they want to take, and more importantly, you know, how they're going to be able to deal with all the pressure and everything that comes along with it. Um, I just feel that it's going to result in a lot of burnouts. And to add to that, you know, there's the other side of that equation also is like our parents and, you know, generations before that did believe in a more holistic education. What I mean by that is like, you know, people would go into different kinds of vocations, liberal arts, they would do, you know, language, they would do history, they would do geology, whatever, right? Which were not necessarily very high paying jobs, but, you know, they would rack up student loan debt. And, you know, we've seen the fiasco of, uh, you know, what's been going on in the country right now over the last 20, 25 years where colleges have become exorbitantly expensive especially when you climb up the food chain and, you know, people are raked in debt and they're not finding jobs. So what exactly is the value of that sort of education and should, you know, not necessarily government, but any bodies or whatever is out, even counselors as simple as that school counselors, should they be warning students into going into vocations like that or even completely, you know, stopping them from doing something of that sort if they, if, if, if you know they require to make that sort of money growing up, um, what are your thoughts on that? I I kind of see the role of uh, of schools as establishing like a core skill set. I think it may be asking a little too much <laughs> to have them prepare students to be productive at a company from day one. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the job of schools. Um, I think it's more important to instill in their students a, uh, a base level of skills in a variety of areas, a certain well-roundedness and the things I'm thinking of are, you know, literacy and, and critical thinking skills, um, some amount of, you know, teamwork ability to discuss issues with, with classmates and and those type of skills and then also to provide uh, exposure to different fields so they get a feel for what science is like and you know, what literature and writing and and certainly the arts um, so sort of a, a core skill set and then the basics in a in a range of fields and then beyond that I think we may be better served um, by having more on-the-job training. Um, from my personal experience, I know I, in uh, undergrad, studied mechanical engineering, and we, uh, in, in the engineering department, sometimes we would scoff at some of our fellow students who were studying um, things like philosophy or sociology. And looking back, that was probably pretty unfair because we would think, well, you know, it's, it's silly to study these things that don't have an immediate um, 
job market, but looking back at even something like mechanical engineering, I would say half our classes were about, you know, technologies from the 19th century that we certainly weren't going to get jobs in either. And we would have benefited um, from more discussion-based formats and, and more honing our critical thinking skills that we might've gotten more opportunities to do in some of those liberal arts fields. So I don't think the answer is to try and turn uh, colleges into some sort of, you know, hyper-technical tech worker factory where we're just producing students who can go to a tech firm and be productive from day one. Uh, and I don't think that the curriculum in colleges is agile enough to meet that need anyway. I think it's sort of an impossible goal. Um, so I think we have to find a way to maybe get job experience earlier for, for students. I know for myself, um, I had not wor worked at a full-time job before choosing a, a major. And I kind of wonder if, if my choice might've been different. Um, so interweaving that, I know there's co-op programs and things like that, but uh, basically what I'd say is a more balanced approach. So you don't like, as you were saying, have a student where you say, you know, you've been in school for almost 20 years from the time you start to the time you graduate and get a job. And how, how can you make educated choices during that time about what to study and what job you want without at least getting a little bit of experience? No, that completely makes sense, right? So I think to add to that, um, I was thinking about this the other day. And I believe that the stopgap solution right now is probably to, if you do go for a four-year college, um, you know, it, it, every semester should have X number of credits uh, allocated to actually getting unpaid internships at companies. And that way, at least in the four years, it's not a perfect solution, but at least it gets your feet wet and you understand what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And so if let's say you're doing like 20 credits a semester, I'm just throwing a number out. Maybe 10 of those are completely accredited to, you know, going out and just working in a company, working in that environment. Or, you know, if, if you don't want to go into a company, maybe, you know, go into other vocations. You can be a, a professor at a school. You can, you know, tr get your feet wet in what you think you would want to do. And that way, every semester you can try something different. And if you like what you do, all eight semesters, you know, be, be, be my guest do that same thing. And then once you're out of, out of college, not only would have, you, you have experienced college, but you also experienced a work life. And then, you know, you would be ready for the real world. You would have seen how the world works and you wouldn't have that necessarily that deer in the uh, headlights uh, sort of glazed look, right? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I agree. I think another advantage there would be building closer connections between businesses and universities so that, for example, if you were going to do an internship or uh, a co-op program, you could say, learn, uh, let's take a, like computer-aided design, CAD skills, for example. You would learn that maybe one semester and then the next semester have an internship where you can apply that at least in part. And then also, try and moderate the expectations of those internships to, to say part of this is figuring out what you want to do and 
what kind of technical skills are going to be needed for that role. But part of it is learning soft skills and how to be a, um, a productive employee for, for an employer. How, how, do, how do you figure out how to make yourself useful at a company? Um, and that is something that you can take from an internship and apply it to other fields as well. So it's not just a narrow, um, narrowly focusing on a single skill set. No, that completely makes sense, right? And it, just to kind of add to, to this conversation, um, the other thing I was thinking about is, uh, this is sort of in a different vein, but the expectation that employees are supposed to have now or employers have out of employees is that you're supposed to be 100% efficient and your soft skills through, should be through the roof. So no matter how bad of a day you're having, you can never express emotion. You can never express, you know, how frustrated you are. You know, you always have to be 100% on your best behavior, especially in the PC culture era that we live in. And if you don't, that's a huge red flag on your employment record. Doesn't matter how skilled you are, et cetera. When you're working such long hours and continuously under that kind of pressure, ultimately, like we are human, right? We, we do have a breaking point. And I've seen so many people just lose their minds, you know, go completely berserk. Shouldn't there be some program in every company or, or some, uh, some way that people not only can vent or can stand up to this kind of oppression? Because I feel like the you know, older that some of these companies are getting or the job market is maturing in the 21st century, you know, people uh, or or the um, the care that, you know, employers used to have about their employees in, in the last century is kind of just dwindling away. Like there, there's no value of a person just feels like you're, you have a dollars and cents, you know, number just, etched onto your forehead and when that drops to zero you're done yeah i i I guess to start i would make one distinction and that's there are some restrictions that are certainly good in the workplace in terms of making sure it is a um a comfortable and welcoming environment for for all your employees so you don't want for example an employee venting in a way that um is derogatory or something uh, towards another employee. Um, and I think we, we'd agree that, that that's um, an improvement in the workforce. Completely but, agree, yes. Yeah, but I, you're right that there are sort of expectations that I think are unrealistic and it can be uh, detrimental um, to to have those expectations because it creates a kind of a dissonance between the expectations and, you know, what's, what's realistic for individual employees. Um, I think that when you can be open with your coworkers about having uh, struggles and difficulties at work, then that type of honesty will make it certainly i think makes teams work better when you can just be open and honest and then once once you 
create that type of environment, then I think people can be more, they're just more frank with each other in a way that's constructive. And you can say, Hey, you know, um, maybe this week, you know, I messed up on something and you provide feedback in a way that helps me improve. And then after doing that, then it's more comfortable for me to the next week say, Hey, you know, maybe we could do something else better or differently. Now (laughs) that's sort of the ideal, but the question is, you know, how do you actually bring that, um, bring that into reality for a company uh, when there is a lot of pressure to have these unrealistic expectations about efficiency um, and productivity. And I think there's, there's sort of two ways I could see it, um, see that coming to pass. One is that I think that's a better way to work and it should make the company more productive overall if their employees have that attitude. Now, that's just an opinion. It may, it may not be true. It may be true that companies that, that tend to exploit their um, employees can outcompete uh, friendlier companies. Um, I, I'm not sure. But I do think that another way it could come to pass is those high performers um, may prefer a more open and honest workplace. Uh, and hopefully in that way, companies would realize we need to encourage uh, a open work environment where people feel, uh, feel that they can be themselves, they can be comfortable in, in a professional manner, but, you know, still express themselves. And that is the best way to attract and retain talent. No, I completely agree. So I think the conclusion or net conclusion from that point is that you know, for prospective employees, stay away from toxic companies and, and, you know, search out friendly companies that are more conducive to your progress and your happiness and your well-being. Yeah, because I think on a day-to-day basis, you'll be happier. And I think in the long term, you'll learn more because if you're getting consistent, constructive feedback, uh, you're going to be a better employee over time as compared to a workplace where, there's a culture of you can't show weakness or you can't show any flaws because everyone has flaws. And only when they're identified in a constructive manner can we work on those flaws. I completely agree. Um, And with that, Nick, I think we are out of time for this episode. Um, Thank you again for joining us today. And we look forward to uh, recording more episodes with you. Thanks for having me. Perfect. So that being said, thank you everyone for joining us uh, tonight. Please follow us on uh, Instagram on theawarenessproject.us. We also have a website, theawarenessproject.us, where we have all the episodes listed, where you can uh, listen to them and provide feedback if you so desire. Um, And again, thank you again for joining us and have a wonderful evening. Goodbye.